How are you guys? Good. Good, you know, just working on miscellaneous stuff, trying to stay busy over the weekend. That kind of thing. You guys you guys based in LA? Uh mm. no, we're we are uh we're all over the place. Uh I'm in Providence, Rhode Island, uh oh. and Morgan's in Canada. Yeah, I'm in the Halifax, Nova Scotia at the moment. Congratulations. I, I, I am always, I am always glad um, when when we talk to people, you know, filmmakers, respected filmmakers who um, are are not fighting the fight in Los Angeles because well, what's the point now? Yeah, you know? fuck that place. <laughs> Wait, are you guys in Los Angeles? I shouldn't, I shouldn't disparage it. No, but we're. I, I don't know. Is is San Francisco, LA adjacent? I feel like uh, the mayor no. has got. We we've got our own. Uh, no, you have you have your own proud lineage of filmmaking that I would view to be uh, distinct from Los Angeles, although cl- closer to, to LA than some other film cultures, but still still decidedly distinct. So I think it, I think it's. I think yeah, it we're very different. I, um, the whole overlook thing that, you know, kind of brought us in this room, making this podcast was kind of me trying to put my foot down, begging filmmakers not to move to LA from San Francisco. I'm like, there's so much potential up here. There's so much like culture and art. And then I lose that fight every time. So yeah, we kind of, you, you have in San Francisco, you have like, what are at this point, like super respected establishment figures that you could like Coppola and Lucas are both San yeah. Francisco boys. So, so to speak, uh, I feel like you could, you know, whether, whatever you think of them, you can hold them up. I feel like as examples of the, of what San Francisco can offer. Right. Or no? Yeah. It's kind of just the work. Like right, if you're yeah. trying to get in and you want to shoot like commercials so you can at least be doing the thing you love, even though making commercials probably isn't your end goal, Mm-hmm. But none of that work is really up here. And we did have that yeah. boom of all the uh, startup companies. And there's kind of a lot of money floating around, but that's gone. Yeah. So Yeah, the, the days of San Francisco being a haven of the starving artist is it's not there. It's yeah. just not there anymore. Yeah, you're either uh, rich or starving. Yes, <laughs> correct. I feel like that. I feel like Los Angeles. I guess you say that, like the work is there, as you say. But I, my impression of LA every time I go now is that it also is like the cost of living there is so high that I don't. I don't know how anybody does it. Although maybe that maybe the sprawl in LA is easier to access, so you can like live in Pasadena or like deep oh, yeah. in the valley yeah. or something. You know? Yeah, it's <laughs> weird. I talk about that all the time because we do events out here, and if you're in LA, you do an event, and maybe you'll have hundreds of people there that don't live in LA. And they all drive in the Mm -hmm. Bay area. We don't have that culture. Like that's why you see a lot of like, I mean, Iron Maiden comes to town and uh, it's like, they're, they're in the East Bay and it's like, well, fuck that. We'll wait till they go North a few miles and we'll drive out to go there. It's a better better crowd. It might not even sell out down here. I don't, we got a really weird culture for art. Are you telling me Iron Maiden can't sell out? East Bay, San Francisco. I find that hard to believe. I feel like my impression of Iron Maiden is that they can sell out anything. All right. Now, do you prefer Phil or Philip? Uh, <laughs> e- e- either one. All right. I'm, I'm ready to get into it. Uh, Phil, uh, we have to talk seriously now because you're not going to believe what I'm going to tell you. <laughs> we, went, we went and saw Ghost and Iron Maiden at uh-huh. Oakland. And mm-hmm. uh, we was were. Five years ago? It was, a, it was a minute ago. Yeah. And we were up there. I think we got like the cheaper up on what, like second deck kind of seats. And uh, the culture in that little community we were, and I mean like locally, people sitting around us, where they would tell you to sit down if you stood up. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. I, 
I don't no, really I believe you, but I, I no, have to. <laughs> um, uh, we, we, we have a good friend who used to be a third chair on the show. He's completely boycotted the Oakland arena because oh. he got into an argument with somebody who told them, who told him to sit down. And he was why like, are you fucking kidding me? Why would you go see Iron Maiden and sit down? It's not a, it's not a concerto. It's uh, <laughs> <you know>. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, dude, it was great, too, because Ghoul was trolling everybody. To be yeah. clear, I would love to hear a concerto oh, yeah. do some Iron Maiden. <laughs> you know, at the wheelhouse. I'd be honestly. down for that. Well, Metallica did it. All the time. And, you know, yeah. shout out to Metallica, who will still do random shows out here at, like, Amoeba. Like, they'll play at a yeah. record store. So, I mean, this, this whole this whole podcast doesn't need to be us discussing metal, but Metallica—they're—they're <laughs> they're San Francisco bred, right? Like, they, don't they come from the Bay Area? I Can, don't know if any of them live here anymore. Right? Uh, yeah, I don't know either. I'm sure a couple because Hetfield might. left. Hetfield got tired of Moran. Oh. <laughs> yeah, apparently, apparently, his neighbors got mad at him for uh, being a beekeeper. <laughs> and so he left Marin. Nothing more metal than that, I, I guess. <laughs> yeah, he got out of the B game and moved to Arizona for the Q game. Oh, no, no, I mean, honestly, um, it's it's weird. And Metallica, that's a great example. They're a hybrid L.A. San Francisco creation that started thrash metal out here. So we got a weird culture, and L.A. is a part of it. Right. But, um, Man, thank you guys for taking the time and coming out here. Uh, we will be talking only about Bay Area culture today. <laughs> so I, I have to bring something up. First, my name's Russell. Clark didn't want to intro me. I introed you. Did you? Yeah, I did. Okay, I wasn't listening. Thank I'm you so sorry. Much. Our communication's terrible. Um, I've been watching a lot of intro or interviews with you, and I think in South by they did a Q and A, and you guys had a like uh, they're they're doing the Zoom thing where they have like a fake background behind them that was just spying the night. And um, Morgan was like, yeah, you can't tell, but behind me, I have a bunch of heavy metal posters. And I totally thought you were just riffing on them. But now that I can see behind you, you oh, do yeah. have heavy metal posters. Yeah, I got that one. This one's an a original Bakshi, you know, like a, the layers, the cell layers from uh, the, his Lord of the Rings. And then if you see oh. here, that's my uh, one, the, our flag. Uh, speaking of the Bay Area, that's where they're they're shipped out of from Carlos's place at Bay Merch. They have these sweet Ian Miller Spine of Night flags. Yeah, okay. and the, I mean the living rooms, you know, got even more of this stuff. But yeah, I want one of those Spine of Night flags. Of course, you, now, now I, I do want to preface this this conversation we're about to have, gentlemen, is that yeah, uh, the man uh, speaking to you, Russell Fisher, who just spoke. I'm Clark. Okay. Uh, but Russell is a man who every night before he takes his, his daily slumber uh, will kneel down at his bed and pray to his makeshift altar of Ralph Bakshi. And, you know, he jerks off on his little wizard print and then he, he gets his nice three hours of sleep. That's fair. I did, That's fair. In high school, I was I was convinced I was the coolest kid because I had seen wizards and mm -hmm. uh, it changed my life. And, you know, I, um, again, for listeners of the show, new people welcome, but uh, regular listeners, I, I briefly reviewed Spina Night, and I, I, need, I feel like I need to clarify my position there. One, um, oh, did have, you not like it? Was your position no, no. bad? <laughs> well, you know, I was hypercritical, and I feel like I need to tell people. So, again, our history with this film. You worked with our uh, cohort in the Unnamed Footage Festival, uh, Madeline Kessner. Mm -hmm. The gather you did was that for South by? 
It was, yeah. yeah. She contacted me for a month and was just like, you need to go to this. You need to meet Phil and Morgan. They, uh, this movie was made for you. And, you know, every now and then, uh, people like Madeline, who I actually believe and trust, will tell me things like that. And it terrifies me. And I'm just like, I can't watch this movie now. Yeah, you default to no. I, and, well, I do this thing. Like, like, I love John Carpenter. I have not seen all his movies. And I think part of it is that I can never watch everything and then be like, well, now it's done. So there's always more to discover. And I, when Spine of Night came out, I went, no fucking way is somebody making a rotoscope film in the 2020s. I was like, I didn't even know people. Like, so we do programming out here. And I, uh, our local Alamo, we have a good relationship with the program director there. And I'm always like, hey, dude, I've never seen an Alamo play like a Bakshi film or like, you know, like Fire and Ice. There's an interesting story there. Or like we could do like some social commentary stuff with Ralph Bakshi. I know like dark hippiedom yeah. used to be a San Francisco thing. I don't know how well they take it now. That, and then they just program Perfect Blue again. Well, everybody's <laughs> like, oh, Perfect Blue was one I argued for a long time, too. Yeah. But... Yeah, people kind of go, I don't know about that. And when when I heard your movie was made, I uh I don't know, it got like a weird anxiety. And eventually I did I did watch it and I bought your beautiful release. I brought it here for proof. Ooh, so, yeah, the steelbook. It's fantastic. And um it, it makes me think of like all the conversations you must have explaining to people what rotoscope even is. And like <laughs> and the the interviews I've heard with you guys. People bring it up because, again, I'd like to get into that because I know this must have been a long and hard journey to make this movie. So, you know, when I'm when I'm like talking to people, I'm like, well, you know, in my fantasy storytelling, it's always a relationship with magic. That's one of the things I like to talk about. And I get like in the weeds instantly. And I feel like I have to preface where I'm like, hey, I love this movie. Like, just to be clear, like I I love things and I get hypercritical about them. So, yeah, I don't care. So why? Why did you make a rotoscope film? Well, I mean, I think like you, I grew up with Bakshi and, you know, Wizards and Lord of the Rings and Fire and Ice. And, you know, I saw American Pop later, which is also oh, great. Beautiful. Um, and, and I love that whole era of his work. And, you know, I think I was just at the right age when that was sort of like <laughs> I was a kid and it was kind of everywhere. I mean, whether it was that or, I mean, the Rankin-Bass uh, Hobbit movies aren't rotoscoped, but they're, they felt part of the whole, you know, in my child's mind's eye. And you had, like, I mean, He-Man was on TV and Thundar was being rerun. And there's just a, you know, there was, like, the same era where, like, the uh, uh, AHA's Take On Me video was on. So, like, rotoscoping was everywhere. And... Uh, and like, I don't know, I guess it, like it never felt like an alien art form to me. It always felt like a thing that would be around and I loved it and it would persist through, you know, you know my life. And then, you know, I saw heavy metal not too long after that, which is, you know, some rotoscoping. Uh, and so when I wanted to get into animation and to doing it and to, to learning it, I, it was like the thing that I had been missing my whole adult life, you know, like there was so little of it that it just seemed like an opportunity to take something I was really passionate about and put a little bit more of it out into the world. And I started with a couple of short films and then Phil saw those and reached out to me because I think he similarly longed for those to continue to exist. 
Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think I would say the like there are biographical reasons I think that we both wanted to do it, but I also think just you know I think we both wanted to do it because nobody else was doing it. I mean, that's sort of what it, my standpoint was. Like, oh, nobody. It, it's almost exactly like what your question is like, or, or your your shock that somebody would have made a Rosco movie in the twenty fourth century was sort of exactly why I wanted to do it because nobody else was, and not to toot our own horns, but like nobody else would dare, like especially <laughs> to make a movie that is you know, like you see a little bit of it, right? You, you see some rotoscoping in Undone and Linkletter's done it a couple times, but but those aren't, um, I mean, for lack of a more nuanced term, they aren't as naked and as violent and as full for genre as our film. And I think those were all, at least to me, and I think to Morgan too, part, part of the the reason to do it is to like, not just like, flirt with it but like like do it like 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 push it all of it as much as far as we could and, and be as uncompromising in those aspects as, as we could so that's definitely what attracted to me like when i saw morgan short films i saw exordium first exordium is the one that's like uh, you, you guys may have seen it i'm not sure but it's the one that is sort of set in the same world and we retell it in the course of the feature uh and when i saw it 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 just i mean it reminded me of being a teenager and seeing like weird fantasy stuff that felt um i mean outsidery is kind of like a pretentious term but it, like it didn't feel like tolkien and it didn't feel like other stuff i was seeing and it just felt like surreal and strange and like something cool and interesting so you know yeah, yeah. there's something about it like rotoscope it feels like it's a cartoon but it's serious and it's kind of exactly everything i like like i like like I'm, I have a hard time with horror comedies because I, I love horror and I can't like if people are too self-aware, it kind of loses me because I feel like there's almost like a defense mechanism there. Like, oh, if it's bad, it's just a joke. So nobody will care. Yeah. yeah. Where Rotoscope is kind of like we're doing animation and we're we mean it like it's very adult themed. And, you know, while you were talking, I, I think I can uh, better contextualize what I was trying to say. In genre film, you know, like we have uh, noir and then there's neo-noir or we have westerns and there's spaghetti westerns. And it's this kind of like fracturing a genre and you weigh them differently. Or like in horror, we have indie horror and then like uh, horror with a budget. And I think I was um, I was saying I was being hypercritical. What I mean is that in The Spine of Night, you aren't a different genre. I I seriously hold your movie with like fire and ice and american pop i think it belongs right on the shelf there's nothing about it that is lesser than in any way so like when i want to talk about it i want to be like like critical about it because you guys fucking did it man and the you know i i want to push down on the rotoscope thing because i feel like we we tend to yada 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 rotoscoping like <laughs> like you know it's filming people and then you draw over it which is a grueling process and uh, if you're not familiar with Ralph Bakshi, I, I highly suggest people go check him out. Stay away from Fritz the Cat as the first one, but look into like Wizards. Me, Clark, we should watch something. Well, why, why are you throwing Fritz under the bus? Well, just there's. I mean, you want to talk San Francisco? There's a there's a lot of cultural stuff that yeah. can set you up for the film. I think you should watch the Crumb documentary about uh, our Crumb first before you watch that. I think. Yeah, I want. Yeah, because yeah, I've seen Fritz, but I, I saw the Chrome documentary. Well, it's it's so different from what Fritz actually is. Sure. Yet it's very Ralph Bakshi, who's a huge <laughs> fan of it. So it's like it's complicated. Um, but with this one, 
I, I recommend, like, if you're like, what the fuck is Rotoscope and why do I keep talking about it? And the reason is because I know, I know these two men right here. They know what it was before they got into it. And I'm guessing you all both saw Painting with Fire, the Frazetta documentary. And you heard those war stories of how brutal, <laughs> like, of just, and I mean, like, there's things you wouldn't think of with animation. Like, uh, there's a story where they had a stuntman, because mostly it's all casted with stuntmen in Fire and Ice. And they had Frank Frazetta, the legendary artist, on set. And he's also like a, I don't know how much of it is true, but he was like a legendary athlete, too. So they would tell stories about how he would like yell at the, the stuntmen and be like, you're not running fast enough. You need to climb up this rope. And he would do it and they would use him. So I'm just like, dude, you have a lot of like stunts in your movie and like physical acting that I don't think gets appreciated enough. So like how like we're coming from like a horror perspective in Indian. It's a lot of like you cast your friends and your family and, and people kind of know what they're getting into. Did you have like a period where you're casting people and you're like, hey, we're going to do this thing. And they're like, well, what is my role? And then you tell them. And yeah, yeah, we had a I mean, a, what do you think? A couple of a couple of weeks, it felt like of casting. We had a, it was a great time. We had rented um, the, the where the same. We did all the interviews in the same warehouse that we ultimately filmed the live action reference footage in. And it, it was it was a blast to get people. And you know, we we'd done some concept art that we put up on the wall so we could sort of point to what they were ultimately going to look like in the film. Um and it it was I mean some friends and family, certainly. I mean I think we're both in there <laughs> more than yeah. once. Yeah. <laughs> um but we it, yeah, it was a lot of bringing people in who are able to do, you know, it, it's such a physical thing. And we didn't really have stuntmen, but we had um like people who had like cosplay experience um uh, amateur wrestling experience that was the best i (laughs) having people who knew how to like realistically fight someone that didn't know how to fight and make it look convincing it was it didn't occur to me when we started casting but by the end i was like we need amateur wrestlers for everything we do moving forward it was (laughs) they're so great to work with and could do a lot of the the uh the more acrobatic stuff there's a this one guy uh crim would um like he had to like run at full speed with like a, what? how big is that, that sword i don't know if this is all going to be video but the sword in phil's background there's like six feet tall and so he had to like run across a uh like a, the warehouse room and like leap to stab uh what would ultimately be one of the, the giant titans things. in the eye but in you know on set it was you know a, 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 this gigantic leap uh, to bury that sword into a pillow, and it was just like I, I couldn't do it. I took a couple of stunt falls onto like a, a I, I was going to say I, I, it, you know Morgan didn't do any Frazetta stuff, but there was one when one of the bird ladies uh, towards the end of the film, you know she she sort of crashes down and like rolls, uh, and and I have footage of Morgan. Um, previewing that stunt for her because she was like i don't understand what i'm supposed to do and morgan's like here i'll do it and he like <laughs> jumped onto the mat and, and rolled and then landed if i recall perfectly with his with his head on his uh on his arm so well, uh <laughs> you know esque i would say yeah yeah <laughs> yeah it's fucking incredible the idea of using amateur wrestlers is genius who came up with that it happened by accident. I mean, we we uh, you know we did like an open casting call here in Providence to get to find actors, and then um, this guy Krim, who I'm now you know 
I'm pretty good friends with. He showed up to audition for one of the parts. Um, I think he showed up in audition for Mongrel, and he wasn't really right for that part. So we, um, but he obviously he had a physicality about him and was like willing to throw himself into stuff. And so I think when we cast him in the part that we cast him, we don't, I don't even know that I knew, I can't remember when we learned that he was an amateur wrestler. And it's even weirder than that, to be totally honest, because the amateur wrestling, um, unit group club that he was a part of, which no longer existed, but when it was existent, it had met in the exact same warehouse where we were filming. So maybe that's how it came up because he was like, Oh, I used to come here to do my, <laughs> to do my like, you know, amateur fight club wrestling stuff. Um, so yeah, so it was, it, it, we sort of stumbled into it, to be honest. Uh, it was, it was, uh, I wish I could say it was one of our genius ideas, but it, it just sort of presented itself and we utilized it, you know? God, they seem perfect for it. Because you think oh, yeah. they're going to have, like, kind of the groundwork of the physique. They're probably willing to do anything. Yeah. And it's, dude, I, I would even watch a rotoscoped wrestling match. Well, <laughs> also, it, they're just natural performers. Yeah. And you can't, you can't take away from that. Are, are you guys actually, like, wrestling fans, or was that? I mean, not particularly. I, you know, I'd watched it when I was very, very young, you know, like, back in the early eighties when I'm yeah. sure none of those people are surrounded. So I never really, I didn't keep up with it, but like, it's, you know, it's, it's stayed in, uh, it's, it's, you know, it's like so evolved into the pop culture. You know, I feel like it's a, like once people sort of be, everyone came to terms with the, like, this is a stage play with physical combat <laughs> angle of it. I feel like it would be, you know, it sort of has had a renaissance that I haven't tuned in for, but, you know, I'm, I'm abstractly aware of. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of friends, like I watched it when I was a kid, but I have a lot of friends who got back into it, like, hardcore in our, I want to say mid-20s. I, I didn't myself, but I was, like, you know, friends with enough people that I was sort of aware of when that happened, and suddenly it was like everybody everybody I knew was into professional wrestling again, so. Yeah, uh, yeah. wrestling's weird. They need to just accept the like everybody's kind of in on it we all know what kfab is and that it's scripted and just up it like up the ante like i've always on this show i've always been like please somebody make a just straight up like soap opera but you know you know the scene would be there's a cafe and there's a dude in a luchador mask eating with a girl at a table and a guy (laughs) with a uh thong and a cape on walks in and they see each other and they get into an argument and all of the extras leave a ref walks in and they just wrestle on set and yeah, I mean, you, yeah. you almost you need to do it like a musical, right? Like it's the same same principle. It's like a movie, except when you need to, except occasionally it's interrupted by like musical numbers or wrestling numbers that make no actual realistic sense, but make perfect sort of emotional expository sense. You know, that's yeah. the perfect way to put it. It's just like yeah. a musical, and yeah. then like the parameters of what we're doing changes, and then we're into like the improv art form that's very athletic, right? And we get both. We get the hyper storyline and we get the, the wrestling. I don't know. I think you guys are the ones that do it. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know if I'm, I don't know if I'm into that stuff enough, enough to do it, but I can conceptually understand how to do it. If you really want to do it, you should like, like construct it so that you have like pre-recorded parts and then you put the movie in theaters, but like the wrestling matches are actually live. So they're like, they're like different every every time you go to the movie. That would be amazing. People Dude, would love that. That is amazing. And I, as a, a person who's seen a live movie, was that Woody Harrelson in that movie we watched? Oh yes. Uh, yeah. It, it's funny because dude, 
I don't know what it is. Live TV and like live streams, they really do have an energy they carry with them. And that movie was horrendously boring. <laughs> yet it felt like we were part of an event. We're like, oh, we're here. Woody Harrelson's doing some boring movie where he goes to prison or what the hell? I missed it. What is this movie? You, you, well, Oksana, what was it called? Yeah, can you look up. that up? Yeah, it was like a one-time live event. Lost in London? I think you're right. Yeah. Lost in London. Yeah, it was like a uh, a fathom event. <laughs> a one-night <laughs> fathom event that was uh, live stream. Oh, wow. Yeah, Clark talked me into going and then didn't end up going. <laughs> well, I, I ended up going to a King of the Hill reunion. King of the Hill. If you do, you guys know Quatermass in the Pit. Do you know the this sci-fi horror movie? No. So, so Hammer made oh, it. Oh, I do. Movie. I do know it. Yeah. Yeah, the most famous version. But the the first version of it was on the BBC, and if I'm not mistaken, it was on the BBC at the time when BBC shows were also live. So the so the version of it, like the old black and white version of it that you see, I think is technically like was presented live to the to the, which is crazy when you think about what happens in that. Yeah, Sorry, obviously some parts of it must have been pre-recorded, but I think large chunks of it are where, where it went out live, which um, is crazy. So, guys, let, let's circle back on casting again because you know the the cast that you guys assembled for this thing is, is nothing short of incredible, and I think that added to and again I, I'm coming this from a a certainly a more ignorant standpoint. Um, with animation, certainly with rotoscope and things like that. So essentially, you know, you've still got these actors who you're still, are, are you still very much, um, because the way that you have to film with rotoscope, are you still very much relying on their physicality? So essentially, are you trying to cast this as more of a, a narrative film opposed to a, a traditional um, animation to where it's just, you know, strictly the voiceover. So kind of walk me through that. Yeah. So, I mean, we, because of the length of time it took to make the film, right. That like casting sort of evolved as we made it. And by that, I mean, when we did the casting sessions, we were talking to you about at the time, we fully intended for those people who had done what we were calling like the motion reference performance that we were just talking about, we were fully intending them that to be the full performance, right? So we recorded their audio, we shot them, and then, you know, we put them into the movie and started to animate them. Um, but then at a certain point, probably about five years into the process of making the film, because it took quite a long time, uh, it, a couple of things became apparent. One, that the audio recordings that we'd made on set just weren't going to cut it because, you know, we didn't really have, it was a warehouse, we didn't have professional sound sound people we had proper mics but we were working with such a small crew that we couldn't really monitor what we were recording so we got some you know post sound people and they were like oh this sound is awful we can't you can't use this uh it was at about that time uh that we started to realize that we were going to need more money to finish the film so we then were like oh if we can cast bigger names in as the voices of these characters that will then allow us to get more money to finish the film right so sure. so it's at that point that we went and you know cast lucy lawless and joe manganello and some of the other bigger names um so at that point that was a little bit more like a traditional animated film uh however it was then even weirder than a traditional animated film because normally you know you do voice records first and then sort of animate to the performance but what we were asking our actors to do because we'd already animated the lips was match the lips of the original performance if that makes sense oh wow yeah. And that's does that happen very often? Well, it happens very often in live action. It doesn't happen a ton in, um, you know, normally like you know, if you and it, 
in live action, you would go back and record your for ADR, ADR. Exactly, re-record your own voice. Exactly. Yeah, you'd be going back to ADR. So this was similar to ADR, except they weren't. They were like ADRing the cadence of somebody else's performance. Oh, um, that's yeah. that's a bit tricky. You know what? Yeah. It, I would have thought that it was very tricky, but they uh, none of them seemed to, to care. They're like, oh, okay, so it's like I have to say it. You know, it, the timing can be the same, but has to be the same, but I can sort of bring my own life to it. Sure. And I'm like, yes, can you do that? And they're like, yeah, no problem. <laughs> so, so. I was amazed at how transformative it was, like how different it could be. Like, it's just not a thing, like, as not an actor myself, I'd ever really even considered was possible. But they're, I mean, all such incredible professionals that they were able to bring not just different performances to this cadence with almost, with very minimal re-lip syncing on my end, but uh, like we're able to do different performances within those confines within their own take on the characters. It, it was mind blowing to me. Yeah, because you know you guys brought in some 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 great talent. You know, Richard E. Grant. Come on, as as soon as I heard his, I was like, oh man, you know this voice, and just what a perfect role for him. And it's just something about that voice is his voice is almost timeless, right? You could put him in any sort of era and it's going to fit in. It's just something about the regalness that that he brings, right? Yeah, I mean, he's yeah, I adore him. Uh, I'm still slightly shocked that he agreed to do the movie, to be honest. Uh, but he's done. I mean, that's the other thing about his career, as you say, you can put him in anything. You know, his career, he's done everything from Warlock to, you know, to like. A Coppola movie, or to a Scorsese movie, or sure. to like that weird Morgan. What was that? Um, like World War Two puppet movie that he? Oh, did? I never even oh. could. I could never even find the whole thing. I found like one minute clips from like two thousand six on yeah, MySpace. Yeah. That <laughs> I, I don't even know if it's ever been released, but I it looked it on, amazing. I think it's on Amazon Prime. I think I watched the first thirty minutes of it. I think. Oh, oh yeah. boy. Okay. I mean, I, I haven't looked in years, I guess, but. Yeah. All right. So he's in a World War II puppet film. Hold on. Hold on. You guys oh, talk. I'm, I'm talking about something different. I'm talking about talking, something. It's like, something it's like a thing he'd done with, like, uh, I want to say, to turn, bring it back around, like maybe some of the designers from Wizards. It was a. I'd have to look it up. It's yeah, a, I know what you We're talking about two different things. Okay. Uh, hold on. Let me find it. You got to talk amongst yourselves. Oh, okay. I'll, I'll yell when I have the answer. <laughs> We're going to take a break on the podcast to all look step up on Letterboxd. We'll be and, and then, of course, I feel like I'd be remiss if we didn't mention, um, you know, on this show, our our Lord and Savior, uh, Larry Fessenden, um, mm-hmm. also had a, had a great role in the film. So uh, how, how did, how did uh, Fessenden uh, walk into the picture? I had always envisioned the, um, the old blind man character as sort of a festive part and the guy that we had originally recorded with in my mind i was like oh if we were to ever do this again it'd be festive <laughs> so i was like super hungover and just a mess when we recorded that yeah, that, yeah just a, a super mess anyway uh, i loved him i loved him but he was was a bit of a train wreck but <laughs> when we had the when we had the chance to uh yeah when we had the chance to do the voice again like it wasn't it was the absolute first thing on my list was i was like we've got to get very fascinated for this guy I, it was you know and it was uh it's, it was amazing to get to work with him we actually got to do a couple of interviews with him too which was and he was came fun. out and did some press with us he he was great like so we coincidentally were using the same 
post sound facility that he uses for I don't know if he uses it for all of the glass eye picks, but he's done he's worked with them a ton. So he'd already seen again, coincidentally, he'd seen part of the movie there because they were working on it there. And then we emailed him and we're just like, hey, we made this thing. Do you want to come be this guy uh, for us? And he was like, yeah, I would love to. So uh, just great. I made him yell about Doom and improvise lines about the end of the world so much. It was like one of the most fun experiences. It's so great. Um, that Richard Grant movie is called Jack Boots on Whitehall, by the way. Right, right. Yeah. Yes. Yes, and it was like a, a Team America style yes. World War II World War Two movie. Yep. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Did you see uh, the name of the one I was thinking of? I'm not going to no. stop. Oh, anyway, <laughs> no one could find it anyway, so don't worry about it. Uh, All right. Now, oh, your mic. Oh. Now, having made a film that's like a late '70s cartoon. Did you have any expectation for how like modern culture would receive it? Like, I'm sure in no universe you thought Shudder would be your partner. Uh, it was, I mean, it was, uh, I, I honestly didn't really think about how it would be perceived, I guess. Like I had done the short films just in my living room back when I was in Philadelphia. And it was kind of just for my own pleasure because I love doing it. And it was exciting that people liked it you know that we you know the the fringe weirdos that loved it thanks to all of them for for all their support (laughs) you know but it was really just like in my i was just making it because i thought it was fun and i loved this stuff and so you know when we had the chance to make this there was i think (laughs) you know the the consideration of how wide it could go and like how big of an audience it'd be able to reach uh, I don't know. We didn't really, you know, we kind of we didn't make any concessions to that for 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 better or worse. You know, I think it was very much like exactly the independent thing we'd imagined, and we just hoped that it would find its audience rather than like pursuing them itself. If that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. totally. Like, did you have like you must have had some sort of incon- like? Did you think it was going to be like a cult hit, or did you think like? it would just become like a new cultural thing and people would have a new like appreciation for rotoscope. I have no idea what we thought, to be honest. I'm trying to think back. I mean, we, again, we started such a long time ago. I remember us talking about, you know, like 2016 talking about distribution, which of course, by the time we finished the film in 2020, uh, the world had totally changed. You know, it was like a, there was a pandemic on it, but B it's like, the streamers had like the rise of the streamers had happened. And like, I think I won't shock anybody by saying like independent film on the screen is like dying even more than it had been, you know, at the time we were talking about it. So I, I, I don't know. It's weird to say you wanted to make a cult hit. I think, you know, from my perspective, I just wanted to make the type of fantasy film that I didn't think anybody else would make. And that I thought would be, awesome you know so it wasn't we really again like entered That's what it you can do yeah well yeah exactly yeah 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 yeah, yeah. yeah and just let, let you know unfortunately just let the pieces fall where they may because it, i i think that um and you know i i feel like i'm speaking on behalf of a, a strong contention of people to where um you know you've got you film fans are in many different sections right but i feel like there's a constant stream throughout all of those subsection of, of film fans where if if they see true craft 
and they actually they see hard work and they see dedication, then that's going to account for a lot of things here. And I think that if they see that craftsmanship and and they see that uh, uh, you know attention to detail and they just see that it's thoughtful, that goes a long way. And that can really do a lot of the heavy lifting for, you know, thinking about how things are going to be perceived. Because, you know, I'm looking for basic things here. Uh, Give me something interesting to look at. Give me characters I give a shit about. And then and then we'll we'll worry about plot there at the end. Um, You know, just give me something to hold on to. And, you know, I think if you cover your bases there then you're going to find yourself in a much more advantageous position where if you're trying to focus on those things that you can't control. Yeah. I mean, I guess the other thing I'd bring up is, is, uh, and I'm sure other people have had the same experience, but I had just seen maybe six months before I saw Morgan's short film, I'd seen, I'd written a movie called Europa Report that had come out and, you know, had gone to some festivals and I saw at a festival the documentary about Jodorowsky's Dune. Um, and in that, like, that's such a, I love that documentary and it's so like inspirational from a filmmaking standpoint. Cause like, again, it's a dangerous standpoint to enter into making a movie. Cause I, I, I'm not sure. I think in the movie he's like, Oh yeah, you don't make a movie to make money. You make a money movie to lose money, which is like yeah. one of the, like, which is, I mean, God bless him. It is again, a very dangerous standpoint from which to enter a movie, making a movie again, given the commercialization and all that sort of bullshit, but it's a great way to enter into a movie from a creative perspective, because it really is just like, we're going to make, what we want to make. And if it makes money, great. And if it doesn't make money, who cares? We've at least made the thing that we wanted to make, you know? Um, exactly. And so because, because it's no guarantee if you go with the other yeah. way that it's going to be a success and then you're yeah, left exactly. with nothing. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. 100%. Yeah. Man, I'm sorry. I had to stop. I didn't realize you wrote Europa, uh, Europa report. I can't yeah, I did. That damn name. <laughs> it's, it's a, it, that title sucks. It is a rural juror of a title. And I think that's a <laughs> but even, even when it came out, this was after that episode of 30 Rock, I think. And I was like, what, what are we doing here? There's like too many R's and too many P's. What are we, what are we doing? But yeah, nobody listens. It's, so. it's, it's, a little, it's a little dog chewing peanut butter. Yeah. One of the producers on it wanted... This is, we have to talk about your open report, but they were like trying to come up with a name for the ship in the movie. And this sort of relates to the title. And they're like, oh, we should, maybe they should call it the Icarus. And I was like, why would you ever name a ship the Icarus? Like, that's the stupidest <laughs> thing. Like, what are you talking about? Like, like you wouldn't, nobody would do that. <laughs> yeah. It was anyway. option number two, the Titanic. <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? Yeah. No, <laughs> like we call I don't know. Challenger. So, um, did Madeline tell you guys that we run a like found footage film festival? Yes. yes. Okay, and you didn't mention Europa Report. <laughs> no. Nope. <laughs> All right. Just curious. Okay, we'll have to drill down on that later. But now we're talking about you know Jodorowsky, who I'm reading his new. Uh, I don't know how new it is, but he wrote a book on Psycho Magic. Oh, uh, I'll oh, talk about that on our next uh, regular podcast. It, dude, it's a trip. Um, <laughs> but we're talking about uh, making film, and you know, you make a film to lose money. It's funny because in context, when you look at all the documentaries of like uh, Bakshi, like a reason he used Rotoscope was to save money, which is a weird concept now. Because when I think of it, this art form that was like an alternative to hand-drawn animation, which now you don't even do. It's just too much money. And I, I know Adult Swim even like they had like unionization of artists and they really are fighting for it. But it's like it's just going to go away. 
And, you know, I was watching a little bit of your behind the scenes and you're talking about how you have hand-drawn animation. And now when I think of rotoscope, I think of a money pit. So <laughs> I don't like, did it end up costing a mortgage or? No, I mean, this, this is what I say. There's, there's a, this is a uh, complicated and nuanced question, right? Like if you try to imagine the spine of night, everything that's in the movie that we made, and you try to imagine that movie live action, you're talking about a budget of a hundred million dollars, probably, yeah. you know? So from that perspective, it was, uh, I don't know if we swear in this podcast, but it was an effing yeah. bargain from that perspective. You know, it, it was, um, so we didn't, you know, nobody lost their house. Uh, and we're, you know, well on our way to making the money back. Uh, we haven't yet. It's sort of dependent on like foreign nonsense, gobbledygook, but you know, um, Anyway, so like I, I just don't know. I, I still think like de- depending on what you're using it for, hand-drawn animation and Morgan's really ch- chime in on this is um, a a cheaper way to like fantastical worlds than live action. I guess it would be my opinion, uh, Morgan. You should probably. I, yeah, I mean, I think that rotoscoping as an animation form is a really cool how it's in the middle of the venn diagram between live action and animation like traditional cartooning because it it you know it has strengths and weaknesses that it draws from both of them you know i mean there's obviously some limitations in the like even when you go beyond the motion reference like you know there's only like keeping within that style is is restricting in a way that like you know cartooning it's not where it's you know everything's exaggerated and squishes and stretches but you want you know like we wanted the physicality of a real human performance so that you know it was grosser when you got your arm cut off <laughs> because sure. you know but bugs bunny gets flattened by an anvil and he's fine you know or you know wily coyote or whatever so it's like the getting that balance is right in the middle there um but in terms of like creating a fantasy world i mean i'm sure it's why you know bakshi and you know others in that era you know why you if you wanted it to look somewhat realistic and then be in a totally fantastical world like the contrast of that is something that rotoscope is just really well suited for um and yeah like you're saying i mean i think i mean like the price to like get the actors on like a frozen mountaintop just for the opening sequence probably would have cost more than the whole film. Yeah. yeah, You know, and and I'm really proud of a lot of how we did it too. Like, yeah, it took forever, but you know, we did it with, with a very small team, you know, but paying pretty good, you know, wages. We didn't use a lot of, you know, like exploit international cheaper labor, like a lot of, you know, much bigger budget, animated yeah. films do you know i i mean i think we really and, and uh, you know credit to you know phil and will who were you know handle a lot of the, the financing it was that they stuck with really making sure these were you know fair jobs and you know good and work we, we had a grand total of zero unpaid interns i say hesitatingly no we, we paid everybody who worked on the film uh and even i mean yeah i have a lot of friends in animation and uh, the unpaid intern or like underpaid intern who does a ton of work is a pretty common thing yeah. in animation. And we, we actively chose to not do any of that. So um, yeah, I'm pretty happy with that too. Wow. That's incredible. Like seriously, like fuck all the indie movies we know about were yeah. like way less um, of, uh, it's just like the people, you know, they do a Kickstarter only to try and pay people. 
And I don't know. That's incredible. You guys still have a moral compass in in (laughs) filmmaking. Well, just just a tiny little bit, right? Man, I know I'm going to get shit. There's going to be a drinking game made after this of how many times I'm going to say rotoscope. But again, it's pretty high. Like, okay, so I do the show. You stayed away from versimilitude, so I'm I'm giving you some. Maybe it's time. Well, when we had Phil on to talk about Europa Report, I'll talk about versimilitude all the time. Right now, we're doing animation, though. And, you know, rotoscope in, like, modern culture, it's just when it shows up, you just have to celebrate it because it's not there. Like, um, a couple metal bands have made music videos out of it, like The Sword. They have the Fire Lances of, uh, I can't, it's a long title, but it's mm-hmm. fantastic. And you watch it, and like I watch it, and I call Oksana over, and I'm like, holy shit, they did Rotoscope. And instantly you know who they are. Because it's like, well, they have to be into Frazetta. They have to be into all these 70 cartoons. And there's like a, there's like a brotherhood right off the bat. And, you know, I, I'm curious here. You guys made a fantasy movie, and I was thinking about it. And I'm like, fantasy and, and Rotoscope go hand in hand, except they really don't. Like you mentioned, like Scanner Darkly and stuff. Those are the newer films. Um, American Pop is a great one. Heavy Metal is, you know, it's got uh, shorts that are like fantasy-esque. But it's more of like, it's very uh, akin to the, the magazine, like Heavy Metal mm-hmm. culture. And there isn't, other than Fire and Ice, I can't really think of just a full rotoscope feature. Because even Lord of the Rings, it's only, well, I guess that one is mostly rotoscope. Actually, that one is completely, right? Yeah, I mean, you could always tell with the Bashu stuff where he's working with people he'd work with on more like with Terry Tunes, like his older, yeah. um, you know, you could always, he had so much traditional cartooning background himself and with his staff, you can always, he intermingles it quite a bit, like a lot of the faces on the poppets and whatever. But yes, it's, I mean, the, the human characters are all rotoscoped in that one. Now, you know, you mentioned faces right there, and I... Uh... I'm reminded of an interview you did where you were talking about maybe in the future trying to incorporate like deep fake technology into rotoscoping. Is there any kind of like new technology marriages that you were able to take advantage of or is it all like hopeful for the future? Yeah, it's all, I mean, all hopeful. I mean, I've, we've experimented with it. I mean, there's a lot of tools that are sort of like emergent, uh, but like, I mean, basically you need kind of a budget to do the R and D. And like, so you sort of need like the project to then justify the research to then justify them. You know, so it's, yeah. I, you know, I, I've experimented a bit with, um, uh, like, I know there's a, what's this guy? Joel Haver has, does like, um, he uses EB synth to do like sort of rotoscope ish, uh, like D and D comedy videos. Oh, okay. Uh, um, which apparently uh, there's a whole generation of people who that's the only rotoscoping they've ever seen, as far as I can tell, based on comments I get on YouTube, which which are all like, I can't believe someone's doing the Joel Haver thing. And I'm like, well, oh. OK, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but whatever. So he, but he uses he uses EB synth. And so I, I experiment with that a little bit. And I mean, I think someday that technology will probably be pretty good. But right now, like, it's only good as long as no one turns their head more than about 15 degrees because the it just loses track of details so quickly. Like, but, I mean, I, I just don't think there's yet a replacement for hand-drawn. But, you know, it's, it's getting better every year, so it's kind of just a matter of time. Now, I'm going to make a statement. Let me know how you feel about it. I kind of don't want the hand-drawn to go away. Now, does that hurt? 
Like, is I I can only imagine. I think you uh, described it as having a prison sentence <laughs> working on the animation <laughs> in this film. Like, is that a positive or a negative? Well, oh, I mean, it, it sort of depends what your goals are, right? Like, I mean, there's something very monastic and appealing to me about, like, spending a very long time doing something uh, that's kind of menial but extremely engrossing. That's, you know, I mean, I, I so I, on an art level, it's very exciting. And it, but it, I think it is, in like a commercial sense, you know, it, it's hard to talk someone into a seven to eight year production. Yeah, so. I know. Mean, <laughs> I'm very uh, mixed on that question. Like I, because I've shown people, like even people who worked on this film, I've shown them like you know, obviously they've seen what we've done, and then I'll show them something like um, I don't know if you know this company, Trioscope. Trioscope. They made a show on Netflix called um, what's it called? It's like a, another World War II story, and they have they have their own sort of rotoscope esque process, and I've and I've shown people like that as well, and and a lot of people they. I mean, the obvious. It's obvious to me the difference. Like you can just tell when something is hand drawn and when it is automated. Even when you look at, you know, maybe some of the automation in the Linklater films or whatever. You, uh, to me, it's, you can just tell what's been done by hand and what hasn't. But I think for a lot of people, they can't. Like, right? like the difference is, is if it's not invisible to them, it's utterly meaningless to them. And that, that to me makes, it makes me sad. But it also means to me, it would be great if we could find some shortcuts because it's like we've done. I mean more morgan than me has done the hand-drawn thing for years now like it would be nice for for him to find like an aesthetically strong new style that's not um murderous to the individual you know <laughs> that you know doesn't lean itself towards carpal tunnel yes exactly yeah, yeah. yeah exactly so what what is the um technique behind uh the liberator on Netflix, uh, right? That, that that's what i'm talking about yes the liberator yeah so do they, is that a computer program or do they actually have yeah. So they, they, it is a computer program. I not, I've never seen exactly how they do it, but they, it involves sort of, you know, they, it's similar to rotoscope in that they have an actor and they put them in the actual costume and they, um, like they sort of draw the actual lines on the faces. It's like a, like a heavy makeup process on the faces. And then, and then they do something with the computer that I'm not aware of <laughs> exactly how that works. <laughs> Well, dude, that's my fear is that, you know, when technology can replace the hand-drawn animator, it's just going to be like a fucking Snapchat filter. Can you just shoot a movie and it just, it does it all right there in the camera. And part of me, I, it's not even a real thing yet, but I fucking hate it already. (laughs) And it, you know, and then you fall into that elitist territory because right now, I mean, we're talking a lot about animation. The dominant animation, which is bigger than I ever thought it would be, is anime. And it's everywhere. And yeah. out here in San Francisco, we do have an old culture. I'd like everybody in San Francisco, they they pretend at night that they're asleep in Japan. Everybody, <laughs> we worship Japan here. And there's so many people we know that they, they have old war stories about going to college campuses to hang out in the, the broom closet where they're showing anime films that have been uh, like pirate dubbed. and mm-hmm. Or uh, not dubbed, I'm sorry, they'd be very mad at that. But uh, subtitled. And you know, it turns into one of these things where well, we watch a movie and they're like, this was hand drawn. And it's like a thing you have to like, that's the setup for the film. You need to appreciate that this one was hand drawn. And I, I just see rotoscope going that direction too. We're like, this is yeah. like spine a night. This was the last hand drawn rotoscoped movie. <laughs> Which would be kind of cool. Cause you made it. But- yeah. It, that would not surprise me if that's how it ends up. 
But I, I hope there's this um, great animated Conan clip um, on YouTube. The guy, I looked it up. It's like uh, Mugen Mancer. If you look up Conan the Animated on YouTube, you'll see it. And his is, it's not rotoscoped. It's uh, 3D, but then hand-drawn over the 3D, like a cel-shaded 3D thing that then is re-hand-drawn to like give it a live... And it's not perfect perfect to looking like hand-drawn but like it looks amazing so like i think there's like a middle ground there where you're using tools to make the process non not as grueling but then taking the time to go back and you know do hand-drawn lines so you have that kind of variation and and that sort of control i think it's one thing that that our process, even though it was tedious, um, there's nothing automated. So everything is live. Like the animation is editable at all times. Like nothing is generated by the computer. So like if, you know, you need someone's face to explode, it's just the same, you know, it's the same process where like you don't have to like film an exploding face because you're not bound to, you're not restricted by your video. Where if you're running something with a filter, like you're always going to be limited to what that filter can process. Right. Yeah. So you'd have to explode a face. <laughs> right. There's right. going to be a lot of murders once that's the technology. Right. <laughs> you know, it's funny um, because you've mentioned like perfect rotoscope every now and then. Can you clarify what you mean? Like, is uh, that like the perfect like hand drawn? Because when I think of rotoscope, I think we're we're kind of like traveling into the uncanny valley of animation, and there's something about it just that just reads real. Like you mm. you can tell, like just the movement is a real person. And uh, did you guys ever see the Black Cauldron? Oh, oh yeah, oh okay. yeah. I should I should have mentioned that earlier in my in my formative uh, <laughs> early '80s films. But yes, yeah, huge fan. So the black can you uh, set up the Black Cauldron? I'm super curious your take on it. Oh, okay. Well, I mean, my hot take is that it was Disney's last good movie. Yeah. But <laughs> I was going to describe it as a fork in the road of Disney's history, and they took the wrong path after after yeah. Black Cauldron. <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, I think you, you know you could see that they were really trying to like sort of get on top of like the Dungeons and Dragons thing that was still sweeping, you know, the the late seventies, early eighties, and like trying to figure out how to appeal to an older audience, and so they went a little more. YA, I guess, than than their you know their more famous classic animation, and I apparently they, there's like eight missing minutes that were fully animated that they thought were too scary and pulled out. I've seen a couple of stills from the missing shots, um, but like I think a lot of those guys were people who'd worked on you know heavy metal, uh, you know like you can you can really see it I think in like the reanimated skeletons at the end. Like there's a lot of whatever with the with the pig and you know the the kids and it's fine. I love the books when I was that age. So you know I yeah. I, was in, I I, I think there might be photos on the making of, but I dressed up as the Horned King for <laughs> Halloween. I was like five with you know I still have. If you look at um, this is a digression, but if you look at the mongrel short film, the Ape King, which I played wears the uh like a skull around his neck with a chain <laughs> because of course yeah. um but that skull is actually i still have like the childhood paper mache skull that my dad made that for the horn king costume i've been hauling that thing around for 
you know, 40 years at this point. See, that's what I'm talking about. When it's like when you're into rotoscope, you can mention a like Disney film that Disney kind of hides now. Yeah. And we know it. And the thing is, I think the Black Cauldron is the perfect example of why rotoscope is serious animation. And he mentioned they cut minutes because it was too scary. Do you know anything about the Black Cauldron? Title only. Okay, so um, it's a it's a departure from Disney for sure. It's very um close to uh, Celtic mythology, mm-hmm. if I'm correct. And, well, yeah, um, well, I think Welsh specifically. Welsh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And um, basically, there's a lot of like straight up fantasy element. Like, there's just dragons in it. The thing that makes it so exciting for dorks like us is the villain. The Disney villain in that movie is a robed dude with a skull, and he's rotoscoped. Now, none of the other main characters are. They're very like sword in the stone, like very mm-hmm. like uh, color blocked animation. And when you put them next to each other, man, the Horn King just feels fucking evil. Like it's yeah. palpable. It's and it's so effective that when you watch it, even I mean, I discovered it in my like late 20s and it's like, holy shit. Disney could have been making some crazy movies and there's undead that are reanimated and much like wizards, which also had a like contrast like that. It really, it pushes that good, bad binary. Like you don't have to say anything. And in this visual medium, you know, that's a bad guy. Yeah. You know what? Let me try and pull up some stills for you. It's, it's fucking incredible. So Uh, notoriously when the black cauldron came out, my mom wouldn't let me see it. And she took me to see, um, Sesame Street's Follow That Bird instead. And I, to this, to this day, I tell her that I'm into all kinds of like metal dark shit because she refused to let me see the Black Cauldron when it was in the theaters. Yep. Yeah. Yep. That's, 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 what, that's what they don't get. You know, parents, they got to understand the long game, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, Follow you, That Bird isn't going to cut it. That's right. You think you got a victory today. You just wait down the road. Yeah, you, <laughs> you repress that shit. And then we start to like, we covet it and we worship it. It's like, it becomes so much more meaningful. Like uh, here, let me give a shout out to my parents who, when I came home with a faces of death movie, uh, freaked out, took it, wouldn't even let me return it to the, the video store. And I went, Oh, that's something I got to watch. Yeah. Wait, what did they do with it? Did they throw it in the trash? No, they honestly, do? I have no fucking idea. I have no clue, but they definitely took it and put it up. I was like, yeah, they hid it from me. And also, it was wow. sucked because my friend worked at the video store, and she's the one that gave it to me. And I was like, now i got to explain that it got confiscated by my parents. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I know we're hitting the hour mark here, and I, I just want to tell you guys, like, you did something incredibly special. And I know, having grown up on, like, seriously, we, what, we do a film fest. We try to host events all the time. We do a fucking film podcast. And... One of the things that turned me down this road was rotoscope and just it's so different. And I spent so much of my high school years trying to like uh, just understand why and trying to get my friends to watch it. And it didn't it doesn't work for everybody. But when it does, man, I, I really think it's one of the best like examples of the visual storytelling medium. And uh, in the back of my head, you know, I'm a horror fan. So we always talk like, oh, make a horror movie. That's kind of like an American dream. But then there's an even deeper, like, idea, which, you know, you can't really sympathize with people on. And that's, a, man, I want to make a, a movie that's rotoscoped. And it's like that one short in heavy metal where they're flying the plane in the war and they wreck and there's skeletons on board. And it's like nobody's sharing that conversation with you. <laughs> so when, when this fucking film came out, it almost scared me. 
And I'm like, fuck, dude, Rotoscope got corporatized. That was that was my that was my fear. It's like some like some That's big, not what happened. No, and I I mean sitting here with you now, I feel bad. I should have been like flying your flag the whole time here. Um and I, I don't know, man, you guys did something that is probably impossible. Look at you guys. You grew the Grinch's heart. Look at you guys. <laughs> so, you know, Clark has a long-standing bit about hating anything fantasy. So the fact that you sat through this movie, I mean, speaks volumes. Again, give me something to hold on to. That, and, and this film did that in, in you know, extra, man. It, it's just, uh, yes, I do struggle with fantasy because I struggle with fantasy in my normal life. Um, so, so I feel like, you know, throwing in dragons and stuff, that's only going to confuse me more. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to grasp the, the reality of my everyday. Um, but again, you know, uh, nothing short of what Russell said, you know, what you guys did was just incredible and it was just a, a treat to talk to you guys today. Um, so what, what's, uh, what's next, both, uh, you guys, any mutual projects coming up independent? What can you tell us, uh, to see from you guys down the road? Well, first off, thank you both so much for having us and for saying that. I mean, it's, it's so amazing to have done, you know, to work this long and then to be able to find that there are actually people out there who are excited about the same stuff that you think only you and your closest friends are excited about. So <laughs> that's awesome to hear. Uh, in terms of projects, I mean, we, we we're always I mean, we've written a lot of uh, scripts and pitches and, you know, stuff. So we're, we're, we've got a lot that we've been working on together. Uh, I don't know if there's anything we can really talk about yet. I mean, what do you think? Phil, you got... <laughs> not, not really. I would say we hope to revisit the world of, of Spine of Night, uh, either in feature format or series format. We haven't quite cracked how to do that yet, but we're we're, we're working on it. Uh, and then we have a, a bunch of, as Morgan said, a bunch of other stuff that's like, you know, all within well-established nerd genres. We have a sci-fi project that we're hoping might get going, and then a couple of other sort of fantasy-adjacent, hopefully the type of fantasy that Clark likes. I know it's not your thing, but <laughs> okay. now, now, we, now we have a target, that, and it's you. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you know, it's, there's stuff percolating. It'll, it'll probably be a while before you see anything from us uh, actually completed, but we're we're working on it. Well, we do a yearly film festival. It's all in-world camera, uh, found footage horror, POV cinema, faux documentary. And if you guys feel so inspired to make a faux documentary about discovering the lost eight minutes of Black Cauldron, uh, <laughs> we will program oh, it sight unseen. I'm writing, I'm writing it down right now. Yeah. <laughs> yes. I'm not joking. And y'all are, you're fucking talented. And I mean, you, you did it, dude. Your film is in no way lesser than any of the movies uh, that inspired it. You're right up there with it, dude. You guys, you fucking rule. And you know, all the ugly stuff that comes with making a movie, like even like fundraising or anything. If you guys end up doing a Kickstarter or any of that crap, please let us know. We're, we're there with you all the way. And I apologize for not, I mean, fuck talking to you or hanging out like a year ago again madeline i'm sorry she it i, I was it was embarrassing madeline was like i don't you need to watch this movie and i was just like i understand then when your film came out i, I started getting a bunch of dms and people were like dude have you heard of spine night and every time it was, i don't know i don't know it i don't know i almost felt like guilty I was scared. Uh, I, 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 I completely understand. There are things that I refuse to watch because I'm, I'm, yeah, because I know they're like too much my thing, and I just don't want to. I just don't want to engage. I completely understand the instinct. I completely understand it. Yeah, I. Uh, 
when when we finally did watch it and Lucy Lawless was like the first voice, I uh I was like, holy shit, Oksana. I was like, they figured it out. She's so fucking perfect for it. Right. I got giddy, instant goosebumps. Right. Uh, again, I can only offer apologies. So now uh, we will be your corporate slave. If you have any kickstarting or anything, let me know. Uh, we're there for you. Awesome. It's a deal. <laughs> Thank you for listening to this episode of the Overlook Hour. And if you would like to hear more, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or whatever your podcatcher of choice is. And while you're there, go ahead and give us a rating and or a review, which is a very easy way for you to support this show uh, that we bring to you every week for years now, free of charge. And as always, you can find us on YouTube at The Overlook Theater, Instagram at The Overlook Theater, Facebook at The Overlook Hour, and Twitter at The Overlook Hour. Last but not least, you can send us your emails and tell us how much you like or dislike the show at overlookhour at gmail.com. And if you're nice, maybe we'll uh, read them on the show. I've been your engineer, Randy Stat. Please join me along with Clark, Russell, and Oksana again next time. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>